This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. It's Hispanic Heritage Month, and depending on how you count, Latinos have emerged as the, quote, largest minority group in the United States. But pop culture and the media often overlook the diversity among Latinos themselves, including a significant population that defines itself as Black. Afro-Latinos start opening up their mouths and getting a little bit more public space to be able to have an authentic interaction about what their experiences have been. The Afro-Latino experience coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to A Word, a podcast from Slate about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The recent census revealed that a growing number of Americans who identify as Latino also identify as black. But historically, many American Latinos have shunned any connection with their African heritage even when that choice divides communities and families. Someone who's fighting for recognition of the Afro-Latino experience is Tanya Hernandez. She's a law professor at Fordham University and also the author of the forthcoming book, Racial Innocence, Unmasking Latino Anti-Black Bias from Beacon Press. And Professor Tanya Hernandez joins us now. Welcome to A Word. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Look, let's talk about terms. And This is something I think a lot of people don't understand. Latin or Latino or Hispanic, what are your thoughts on what terms should be used and and why when describing people who, I guess, at their core, draw their heritage from a Spanish-speaking country? Certainly. I I mean, I think that's obviously very personal to individuals. Um, Hispanic is a term that the U.S. government formulated uh, in order to gather data uh, about the presence of people uh, immigrating from uh, Latin American and Caribbean uh, Spanish-speaking areas. Uh, Latino uh, is a term that is meant to more readily embrace uh, the ways in which we are not just uh, from Spain, that we are from uh, multiple ancestries, indigenous and African as well. Newer generations now have wanted to disrupt the gender binary uh, and add the Uh, suffix X or E. I uh, prefer to use a a Spanish language uh, usage of an A or an O, uh, but I have no problem with what other people's personal preferences are. Um, I think what's problematic is when we are being policed by others about what terms we use for ourselves. Uh, More often than not, it's an Anglo white person who's telling me to use an X. to describe myself. (laughs) So I find that highly problematic. Here's something else, uh, Professor Hernandez, that I think a lot of people who, I guess, didn't grow up around a lot of of Latino Americans or Latin Americans or Hispanic Americans, they don't necessarily understand these notions of being a black or a white Latino, right? I remember, you know, seven or eight years ago pointing out that George Zimmerman was actually a white Latino, a lot of people didn't want to talk about that and the role that that played and how he looked at Trayvon Martin. Can you tell us a little bit about how this idea 
of white versus black. How has that evolved over the last 15 or 20 years? Well, I, mean, I think the very first thing to keep in mind is that uh, Latinos are descendants of African slaves. Uh, and in point of fact, the African slave trade uh, was much more of a presence in Latin America and the Caribbean than it was in the United States. Uh, so just to throw out some numbers very quickly, uh, over 65% of the approximately 10.7 million enslaved Africans were brought to Latin America and the Caribbean. And in contrast, only 6% were brought to what we call the United States today. Uh, so when you put that into perspective, the legacy of slavery and the indigenous presence as well in Latin America and the Caribbean uh, is much stronger than even that in the United States. The existence of people who look phenotypically uh, African, uh, phenotypically European and white, uh, and then the mixture in between we have all of that in Latin America and the Caribbean, just as you do in the United States. Now, there is also a very complicated way in which racial oppression has manifested in Latin America and the Caribbean. And part of that story is trying to tell people, nation states, very particularly, uh, telling people, there are no black and white people here. We're all a mixture. We are just our nation state identity. We're Cuban, we're Venezuelan, we're Peruvian, etc. At the same time that this language of what we say in Spanish, mestizaje, that is racial mixture, all that is existing at the same time that a very entrenched racial hierarchy is in place. Everyone knows it. Everybody understands it. Black people know that they're supposed to stay in their place or otherwise be policed and beat down. Uh, so within Latin America, there is an understanding right, of blackness and whiteness. We just don't like to talk about it. You've talked about how anti-blackness in the Latino community affects people in their closest relationships with darker skinned children facing slurs from their lighter skinned relatives. How have you seen that play out in your work or even in your own family? I mean, did you have any childhood experiences with anti-blackness that affected your education, your career, or how you saw yourself? I actually feel like I was born into uh, uh, the trauma that comes from anti-blackness within Latino families themselves. This is because my own mother uh, was threatened uh, with being given away because when she was born, uh, she favored my grandfather, who was a descendant of slaves. Uh, and so the family was unhappy with how dark she looked to them, and they wanted her to be adopted out. And they were looking for a African-American family to give her away to. And why do I know about this? Like, you know, so many decades later, because it was a constant uh, presence within her family. You know, the idea of you're acting out, we should give you away now. We didn't do it before, but maybe now comes the, the moment. It was always a reference to being unwanted because of her blackness. And, you know, this left a real wound for her. It was something that she shared with me um, because it was so painful to her. And so... I sort of enter into the world already knowing some of these problems with anti-blackness within the Latino community. And I've continued to see it time and time again, you know, all the Latino memoirs about feelings of rejection from family members, or when people are trying to form intimate relationships with other partners and the partner's family rejects them because of their dark skin. This is unfortunately a very deep and problematic aspect of the Latino race dynamic. 
we're going to take a short break and we come back more on Afro-Latino identity. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Afro-Latino identity with Professor Tanya Hernandez. I think about all the oftentimes white liberals and uninformed black progressives who for years and years and years used to like praise Cuba. See, look at Cuba, all the great things. It's done. But when you actually started listening to Afro-Cuban voices, they're like, actually, no, like there's just as much racism here. There's anti-black racism in Cuba, you know, whether it's under Castro, whether it's under his brother. And so if you could just talk a little bit about the specific anti-blackness that occurs in the Latino community and and how does that manifest itself sometimes within politics? I mean, you know, is it easier to run as a light-skinned or a white Latino than it is, you know, to run as a black Latino? How does that sort of play out in day-to-day life for, for Latin Americans? Well, within Latin America and the Caribbean itself, there is a pigmentocracy, that is to say a skin shade hierarchy, uh, so that the lighter you are, the greater you're able to ascend on the socioeconomic status calendar, or I should say uh, ladder. And so the ability to get jobs, you know, people look at your photograph on your resume in many Latin American countries or job advertisements for the longest time used to include this phrase, de buena apariencia, what that means of good appearance, which everyone understands is the proxy for saying white or light. (laughs) Uh, If you're dark, you know, you do not need to apply. And so the ability to have this sort of firm understanding within the racial pathologies of Latin America and the Caribbean about what the inherent uh, stereotyped competence and intellect of people are just based on how pronounced their African ancestry is in appearance. This is a very disturbing and strong legacy um, uh, from our years of slavery uh, that has remained undisturbed. So to circle back just for a second to your uh, Cuba example, uh, when Fidel Castro came in, he, by edict, declared that there would no longer be racism. He attributed all the racism to uh, the Batista era and before. And some things improved, right? The things that improved were putting greater economic access to public schooling, uh, to housing, uh, giving, you know, creating these public spaces that were race neutral, so to speak, but were now no longer race bars. But what was left untouched were all the ways in which people still had very strong ideas about who was smart and who was capable based on race. And that was not challenged because now talking about race was taboo. The idea was we got rid of racism, so shut up and don't talk about it anymore. You bring up race, you're the racist. That kind of silencing, that censoring has 
uh, enabled racism to sustain itself and then be brought over into the United States by Latinos here in the U.S. In the broader black community, right, broader African-American community, there is usually a hesitancy about describing yourself as multicultural, right? We all remember Tiger Woods saying, I'm Kabul and Asian and People from the South always claiming that they have some sort of heritage to you know, Native Americans. Look, sometimes these things are true. Sometimes they're being used as a way to distance oneself from being a black American, right? Because of all the, the pathology and violence and, and discrimination placed upon us. What are those cross pressures like for people in the Latino community? Because it's like, yeah, I, I can be black and Dominican. I can be black and Cuban. And, you know, sometimes people may react to that as if I'm trying to distance myself, but I'm really just saying what my actual identity is. Well, interestingly enough, the cultural pressures uh, play themselves out slightly differently within the Latin American and Caribbean context. You know, within Latin America and the Caribbean, the notion is the lighter you are, the better. And it's more polite if you are friendly with someone to never mention their African ancestry, to simply say, you know, oh, they're just, you know, have a little touch of coffee uh, with sugar in their <laughs> in their appearance. Um, now, if they're not friends, if they're strangers, you can talk trash about them with all the same virulent uh, denigrating terms uh, that you hear in the U.S., but you know, translate them into Spanish, and then we got some extra spice. Uh, and so the cultural pressure is not to reference uh, any of your African ancestry or even indigenous ancestry, uh, that by doing so, you are being divisive. Right? Now, the cultural pressures once we're in the United States are very interesting as well. Right? Um this census, the 2020 census, right? It, it is being taken at the very same time of the aftermath of George Floyd, his death, all the protests, and Afro-Latinos raising up their voice to say Black Lives Matter in Spanish as well. Right? I mean, we have skin in the game. This is about us as well. And Latinos who are light-skinned, right, or, or as others say, white-appearing, but not necessarily self-identifying as white, they resist that um, implication right, that they are part of the problem. And what you have is a result that the 2020, cen 2020, excuse me, the 2020 census has this huge landslide of Latinos who previously had checked white <laughs> on the 2010 census and the, and the 2000 census uh, into some other race category and the and uh, mixed race categories, meaning before they were perfectly happy checking white. Afro Latinos start opening up their mouths and getting a little bit more public space to be able to have an authentic uh, interaction about what their experiences have been and what they currently are as racialized Latinos. And all of a sudden, these white uh, Latinos are wanting to say, "Oh, I'm not. I'm not white. I, I'm a mixture. I'm all these other things." Um, and so, the personal, the the pronouncement of you know a personal racial identity uh, is very complicated. At at the same time, that it's not so complicated. What I mean by that is that it is very much enmeshed right in trying to deny any kind of accountability. Uh, for our continued racialized stereotypes, uh, by the way in which Latinos are racist uh, against one another. So, you know, in my own research, what I have seen are, are cases after case in which a Latino landlord is the one shutting the door in the face of a dark-skinned Latino. 
where a Latino supervisor is the one that is racially harassing an Afro-Latino. Uh, I can go on and on, right? You know, every uh, sphere uh, where anti-discrimination law steps in, there are cases of Latinos who are the agents right, of anti-Black bias against other Latinos. It, politically, there has been, again, I think a rather naive belief that, hey, there's this growing demographic majority that's going to end up helping Democrats. My thought has been, if you have a large number of Latinos that decide to identify themselves as white or want to be white adjacent, that increasing population doesn't necessarily help Democrats because they may adopt the same nativist anti-black policies as the now diminishing white majority. Do you think that's what we're going to see happening? I mean, to me, what I see happening with the Latino community is what we saw 80 years ago with the Irish and the Italians suddenly saying, now I'm white, now I hate everybody else. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, um, the sociologist Eduardo Bonilla Silva, he's famous for, you know, all the research about racism without racists, but he's also very well known within academic circles uh, for this idea that we are moving towards the idea of honorary whites, right? That is to yep. say, Latinos may not be fully accepted as whites, but mm-hmm. uh, with they ain't black, they ain't black <laughs> or at least there are those who can pass or at least right. pass ish. So those will be cre- will be able to carve out a little bit more space. Many of us believe I, uh, I, I I'm in with there with Eduardo Bonilla Silva in believing that the way in which our patterns of uh, allocating a little more space. Uh, to white identity in order to maintain white supremacy. This is an old game uh, that has been played for a very long time in the United States. And I think now Latinos are being sort of positioned to be able to do that. I say all that to say this. Uh, What's important for people who care about uh, racial progress and equality uh, and liberation uh, is to be very attentive to the ways in which you cannot just rely on demography. You cannot get away from the hard work of actually engaging people about their racial ideologies. I mean, you know, you have to like talk to Latino people about these issues as opposed to presuming that because we call them people of color, that that in of itself is going to put the votes in the right place towards racial liberation. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on Afro-Latino identity with Professor Tanya Hernandez. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com easy. Ramp.com easy. R-A-M-P dot easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the Afro-Latino experience with Professor Tanya Hernandez. 
Professor Hernandez. So this always excites me because I love talking about pop culture stuff. Um, so you had this 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 big thing over the summer with Lynn Manuel Miranda makes the heights, and lots of people were excited about it. And then the movie comes out, and then there were complaints that it eliminated or erased uh, you know Afro Latino people, and that it wasn't really reflective of the community. Where are we in Hollywood? in your opinion, about presentations of Afro-Latinos? I mean, the fact of the matter is there aren't that many Latinos, Latinx people who are in TV shows and movies anyway. You know, you have your four or five famous actors. You have your several Latino women who are always paired with white guys sort of situation. But you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of sort of Afro-Latinos. Is that something being pushed for or is that sort of being subsumed into we just need to get more Hispanic people in first and then we can worry about the Afro-Latinos later? Well, you know, the way I look at it is that in some respects, it it echoes uh, some of the ways in which African-Americans have experienced the uh, Hollywood venue <laughs> or space. Uh, maybe that's a better way to put it. The, the industry, as they like to call it. Why do I say that? Because at first we were all just super excited, or our ancestors, right? We're super excited about there were some black people in a movie. All right? uh, but notice they were all light-skinned. Where you could go movie after movie after movie, and it's like light and bright and pr- practically white. And maybe sometimes only we could tell that they were actually of African ancestry. Right? We try not to make too much noise because we were just thankful, right, that we were in a movie here and there. As time has gone by, right, civil rights movements, etc., and more of an attention to colorism. That is to say, we may all be of African ancestry, but some of us, let's get real, have light skin privilege. Right? And there's a greater acceptance of us uh, who, you know, got the fine features and the hair that lays down or, or what have you. And so the very same battles in some respects that our dark skinned brothers and sisters have had to launch in order to be included within the, uh, the inclusion of Hollywood is what we're seeing now with Afro-Latinos and Afro-Latinas within Hollywood as well. There's even smaller space uh, for actors and actresses um, of Latino ancestry. And so, you know, it is a uncomfortable space, I think, uh, to talk about this. And I think that's why a lot of the uh, actors and actresses, you may have noticed if you were following this, really didn't speak out. It's the audience that spoke out, but not the actors and actresses. Why? They need jobs <laughs> and, there, and there aren't that many spaces. So if they start com- coming out and talking trash um, about Lin-Manuel Miranda or anyone else, you know, their own livelihoods are at stake. Or at least I speculate that that's part of what accounts for the very muted response and sometimes absolute silence. It's like crickets uh, when this went down. If you were to jump ahead, say, 15 years from now, where do you think this conversation about Afro-Latino identity will be? Do you think that it'll be regional, that if you're Afro-Latino, that'll be something that matters if you're coming out of Philly and New York, but the Southwest is just going to be dominated by sort of white presenting Latinos? Where do you see the sort of demographic change taking us politically over the next 15 years? Well, you know, what's very interesting to me is to observe the way in which within the last 10, 15, 20 years, we have seen more members of the Latino caucus also asked to be part of the Black Caucus because they're Afro-Latino, Afro-Latina, and also at state levels as well. Um, And so at the very same time that we have sort of this white-identified Republican uh, sort of space uh, within the Latino Caucus, you also have a more blue state, if you will, uh, Democratic presence of Afro-Latinos 
bridging both spaces. So, you know, that, that gives me a little more sense of like hope, right? That there will be a more tempered uh, discourse because of the presence of people who are Latino, but also are of African descent. The other thing that uh, gives me uh, some sense of hope is actually the social media, right? The, the podcasts of the world, right? meaning there is much greater access now for getting out the information. You no longer have to just be living in coastal states to know things about a fuller array and diversity of people and of cultures. And with that, the Afro-Latino presence is it's young and it's very active uh, on Twitter and all other social media platforms. Uh, and so that's my hope that, or at least signs of encouragement maybe, that it, it doesn't have to stay the same, uh, that our young people uh, are much more attuned uh, and also concerned uh, and animated about uh, social change and becoming racially literate themselves. Um, you know, that's what I often hear from uh, young people in the audience, you know, that they didn't know about this, that they're glad to know about it, that they wish they'd known, but now that they know, they can't unknow it. Uh, and they want to do more. Professor Tanya Hernandez is the author of Multiracials and Civil Rights, Mixed Race Stories of Discrimination. Thank you so much for joining us today on A Word. It is my pleasure. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel and Jasmine Ellis. Asha Salusha is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.